but I played uh, baseball in college and I hit cleanup a lot of the time, which was the fourth spot. And the idea of cleanup is to uh, get some guys in the first part of the order, batting first, second, third on base, and, uh, and then the cleanup guy is supposed to come in and clean, clean it up, clean the bases up, knock them in, home. And uh, I feel like uh, that's what we did with the songs and then with the prayer. I mean, uh, the themes that were in those first two songs are exactly what Peter expounds on in verses 3 through 5. And so I, I hope that by God's grace and by His Spirit, I will be able to, to simply um, tell you more explicitly about the truths we just sang and that we'll be encouraged by them. Let's read verses 3 through 5, and then we'll just get uh, right into the message. You know what? I'm going to correct myself. Um, I've just laid eyes on Micah and Joanna, and I just want to say to you guys, welcome home. It's good to see you all, and uh, really glad you're back, and look forward to visiting with you after the service. All right, let's read verses 3 through 5. Peter says to the Christians who are spread out throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Praise God for the reading of His Word. Now, I want to begin by repeating a, a song that we sometimes sing. And I want you to fill in the blank. Okay, fill in the blank. I actually won't say blank if you'll just finish the sentence for me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here Praise Him above ye heavenly, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alright, what is the name of that song? The doxology. We've actually come to call it the doxology, alright? And the question really is, is what is a doxology? What is that? Well listen, a doxology is not just that song, alright? It is any song or any hymn or any writing that gives a declaration of praise to God. A doxology is a declaration of praise to God, all right? Now, it's often written as a short hymn, all right, expressing God's power and His glory. The thing is, is if you pick up your Bible and, and you spend a year reading from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you will see a ton of doxologies in the Bible, You'll read a bunch of, of doxologies and you'll read them in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and you'll read them in historical Old Testament narrative and then you'll read them in the Gospels and then you'll also read them in the Epistles and even in Revelation. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, David actually offers a doxology as people have gathered their things, gold, silver, metal, resources, in order to ultimately build the temple. And listen to what he says. He says, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Man, that is a glorious doxology. He's giving all these various attributes of God's greatness, and he's saying you are worthy of praise. In Psalm 8, um, 
David actually just says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he goes on to talk about God's creative power. And he gives a doxology because of his creative power and his creativity of the human body and the human person. Solomon in Psalm 72 says this. He says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things, and blessed be His glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with His what? His glory. And essentially in that psalm, Solomon is actually giving a doxology because of his, uh, God's faithful love, His covenant love to the people of Israel. Some of you are familiar with Psalm 150. Psalm 150 is a doxology, but it's also an instruction of praise as well. Some of you probably even know it by heart, but it says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise God in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him with the timbrel. Praise Him with the dance. And He goes on to give all the instruments and the ways and the means by which we're to praise God. And at the end He says, Praise the Lord. This is a, a, a psalm in, in its entirety as a doxology. And so, when we look at our Bibles and we're reading in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and we cross into the New Covenant and into the New Testament, we read them as well. And this right here in verses 3 through 5 is a doxology. It is a declaration of praise to God. Now look down at your text, verse 3, all right? Peter says, blessed, blessed be the God and Father, all right? The first thing that we need to understand is something that we've talked about the last two weeks is the climate surrounding the Christians who are reading this letter. What is the climate? The climate is suffering. The climate is hardship. I mean, there are people who are being maligned for their faith in Jesus Christ. They are being, they are being abused. I mean, th- th- some of them are slaves, some of them are employees, and they're being physically and mentally and verbally abused by the people that they work for and for the people that they serve. They are struggling in various ways. They have, they have temptations to turn their back on Jesus because of all the kinds of suffering and hardship they're enduring because they name the name of Christ. And in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this hardship, the first thing that Peter says to them is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed means to give highest honor and praise to the one who is inherently worthy of it. To give highest honor and praise to the one who is inherently of it. If you read the New Testament and you read this specific word, blessed, it is never used of men. It is never used of women. It is never used of angels. It is only used of two persons. God the Father and God the Son. It's the only time it's ever used to describe or to give honor to anyone, to God the Father and God the Son. And so the question arises, guys, is this. If I'm undergoing suffering, if I have to go to work tomorrow and be ridiculed by my co-workers and abused by my boss and laughed at by my neighbors and I have to struggle through life because, well, I'm just struggling, why in the world should I turn around and give highest praise and honor to God? Well, that's exactly what Peter answers in these verses right here, verses 3, 4, and 5. And so if you're thinking about an outline here, you can just write down in your notes four reasons to give highest praise to God. Four reasons to give highest praise to God. And I know this. I know that there are people in this congregation who are struggling 
And it is hard to give praise to God right now. But after this sermon, I want it to be a lot easier. I want it to be a lot sweeter. And I want you to feel the rightness about giving glory to God. Kids, I want you to look at me for a moment. Children, it is, um, it is hard sometimes for you to understand all that your parents do for you. All the sacrifices they make for you. All the ways in which they love you. And you don't really appreciate it because you don't really understand it now because you're really young. But about 20 years from now, you're going to look back at all the sacrifices and ways that your parents have loved you and you're really going to appreciate it. Because you'll have a better perspective then. You will have lived longer, you will have studied them longer, and then you will have lived enough of life to understand the various ways in which they loved you well. Well, listen, if we don't study the character of God and the ways of God, and we don't understand what all He has done, we don't appreciate Him as much. We don't want to honor Him as much because there's a lack of understanding there. Well, let's understand our God better and looking at these four ways, and then it'll cause us to appreciate Him and worship Him even more. So let's look at the first reason this doxology is warranted. The four reasons to give praise to God. The first one is His identity. His identity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His identity is not general, it is specific. He doesn't merely call God, God here. He calls Him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. God is chiefly worthy of praise because of His special relationship that He has with our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look down at the phrase. Look at the phrase because in that phrase we have a compressed catalog of exactly who Jesus is. All right? He is the Lord. That is, He is sovereign ruler. He is sovereign ruler of the universe. He is ultimate master. He's not merely our Lord. He's not merely my Lord, or I don't have to make Him my Lord. He is the Lord. I think that's one of the common fallacies of Christianity today, is that I can, I can trust Jesus as my Savior, and then one day make Him my Lord. Okay? Listen, it's not about you making Him your Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is ruler over all of the universe. The question is, are you going to bow down to Him? And worship Him and love Him. So, not only is He Lord, though, He is Jesus. Jesus is a way that Peter is using merely to say that He's a man. He was God who became man and lived life as men uh, as we do. And then not only is He the Lord Jesus, He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the anointed Messiah King. He is the one that the Old Testament promised would come and deliver the people Israel and would deliver the Gentiles out of their sin and out of their misery. He is the Messiah. He is the servant that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 53. Now, there is a relationship involved. Look, it says, our Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is beautiful. He, he is speaking of the beauty and excellence of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And, he, and, and he's saying, we get to take part in this. Not only is He the Lord, He's our Lord. Not only is He Jesus the man, He's our man. Not only is He the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, He's our Messiah. He's our King. He's our leader. And so, His identity, God's identity, is wrapped up in His relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. And I want to make this statement. If there was no connection, if there was no unity, if there was no harmony between God the Father 
and God the Son, then God the Father would not be worthy of praise as He's worthy today. All right? Now, this is the thing. You and I both know people who say, well, I worship God, it's just Jesus that I don't really care for. You guys uh, seen the popularity of, of vehicles that are driving around and on the, on the back, on the bumper, they have uh, the various symbols of religions. You guys seen those recently? It's very popular today. And essentially the message is, can't we all get along? We're, we're all worshiping the same God. Well, I want to tell you guys this. We definitely should all get along. We should love one another, serve one another. John, if you see a, a person of a different religion who's you know, on the side of the road and, and uh, you, know you know them, you know they worship another God and they need help, you should help them. You should love them. You should care for them. But let's not mistake brotherly love and human love and kindness from, oh, we're all worshiping the same God and we have different roads to get to the same point, right? Because the identity of God here is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus affirmed this constantly, all right? He said, I and the Father are one in John 10. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father in John 14. And I was just reading John 17 this week. Listen to what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just, just wrap your mind around the harmony and the unity and the fellowship that Jesus has with His Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You as You've given Him authority over all flesh that He should give eternal life to as many as You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is longing for the harmony and the unity of relationship that he enjoyed before he ever came to earth. And so when, when Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He's saying, bless the God who sent His one and only beloved Son to redeem us from our sins. The one who is our King. The one whom we will bow down to and worship as King and as Lord forever and ever. The one who has redeemed and saved us. Alright? And so His identity is that He is God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Second reason to praise Him is His character. His character. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His abundant mercy, abundant mercy. Now, what is mercy? This is um, the part of God's love that desires to help miserable people. That's what it is. It's the aspect of God's love that wants to help miserable people. If you think about it in kind of contrast to grace, Grace is the part of God's love that wants to clear guilty people. It wants to make guilty people innocent and guilty people righteous. But God looks down upon people and sees people miserable, pitiful, and, and, and He says, I want to help those people. And, and the fact is, you, you guys, if you are a Christian, you were miserable at some point. You may not have always felt miserable, but you were miserable, all right? Let me give you some instances of your misery, all right? You had a miserable heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
All right? And what God does by helping the miserable, He changes your heart from the inside out. And He replaces that heart from that heart of stone to the heart of flesh. You know, you had a miserable mind con- condition. You thought wrong. You thought worldly. You thought humanly. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, listen, the people who don't know God can't think the thoughts of God and they can't discern the Spirit of God because they don't have the Spirit of God. And so they have worldly wisdom rather than godly wisdom and worldly wisdom leads you to hell, not to heaven. It leads you toward Satan, not to God. And it leads you toward more misery, not glory. And we had a miserable life condition. Some of you know that Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 passage almost by heart. But it starts off by saying, we were dead in trespasses and sins. You had a miserable life condition, all right? And, and, and whether or not you realized it or not, you were dead. You might have looked alive, but you were most certainly dead. But God's mercy says, I see this person who is a mere, miserable heart condition, a, a miserable mind condition, a miserable life condition, and I don't want to leave them alone. I don't want them to go on the course that they're on. I want to come help them. I've told this story before a number of years ago, but when I was a, a kid, about the age of 11, I traveled to my aunt and uncle's house in Tuscaloosa, and, and my, my cousin was graduating from, from one of the high schools in Tuscaloosa. I think she was even valedictorian, if I'm not mistaken. But we got there real early, about three hours before the graduation, and so we went to my aunt and uncle's house first, and I asked if I could go out and play. And of course, I was in my good clothes, graduation type uh, clothes. And, and my parents just said, yeah, just don't go get dirty. You know, don't, don't venture too far off in the, um, from the yard. And there was this really great creek that was out behind their, their house. And uh, I went to explore that creek. And it was really cool. I didn't have a creek like that at home. And, and uh, I kind of started channeling my inner Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. And uh, there was this swing, this rope swing that was up on a high limb. And uh, I just thought, boy, I'd love to just kind of jump out and grab that, that rope and swing across to the other side. And uh, that's exactly what I did. And so I kind of was on the edge and I, I ran out like this and jumped on the edge trying to grab the rope. But I miscalculated my ability and I missed the rope. And I fell all the way down in the creek bank into the rocks and I uh, hit my leg, and I hit it so hard that I couldn't walk. And so I literally was down on the creek, down into the creek, on the side, up against this rock. I'm screaming, I'm crying, and nobody can hear me because nobody's outside. And so I stay down there. It seemed like forever. You know, it seemed like 30 minutes. It may have been 10, but they sent a search party after me, couldn't find me, you know. So mom and dad, aunt and uncle are all out looking for me, and they finally find me in the creek. Now, the, the question here is this. Did my parents look down at me and say, Ryan, you got yourself into this mess. Let's see you get out of it. I can't walk. I'm crying. I'm nasty. My feelings are hurt. My pride is hurt. That's not at all what my parents did. My parents found a way to make it down to that creek, pull me out, get me up, take me in, bandage me up. I think they had to take me to the hospital, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, take care of me, and they probably even got me new clothes. This is the deal. They had mercy on me. They had mercy on me. I did exactly what they told me not to do. And I paid the consequences for doing what they told me not to do, but they didn't leave me in my condition. And this is the deal, y'all. God, because He is rich in mercy 
because of His great love with which He has loved us, is merciful toward us and doesn't leave us in our miserable condition. And this is very much a reason to give praise and honor to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's give Him praise if He's rescued you from your miserable condition. The third reason we're to give praise is His power. His power. So not only is it His identity, not only is it His character, but it's His power as well. It says, He has begotten us again. Has begotten us again. Interestingly, this verb, has begotten us again, is only used twice in the entire Bible. All right? And it's used right here in chapter 1 two times. All right? It's the only time that it's used. Let me tell you what it means. It, it, it means regeneration. All right? It means that God has regenerated us. He's caused us to be born again. He's made us a new creation. If you're a note taker, let me just give you a definition of regeneration. All right? Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit at conversion where He changes your heart. That's what it is. It is the work of the Holy Spirit where He changes your heart and you now have the ability, you have the capacity to love God, to know God, and to enjoy God. That's what regeneration is. That's what God does for every person who is crossed over from death to life. Now, the New Testament describes regeneration in a few different ways. And I'm going to get you guys to help me out in filling in the blank here again. He describes it as recreation in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Y'all help me out here. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new what? Creation. The old is gone and the new has what? Come. That is regeneration, all right? You have been recreated. You are a new being. Now, he describes it as spiritual resurrection in Ephesians 2. Help me out here. Even when we were dead in trespasses, God has made us, what? Alive! Together with Christ. And then he describes it in spiritual birth in John 1. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were what? Born, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? God. And so it's spiritual birth. This is the power of God. Now, I really just want to teach you a few lessons here. There's a couple of lessons. The truth about regeneration, all right? The truth about regeneration is this, that it's a divine work. Only God can do it. Micah? You're saved. It's not because you saved yourself. It's because God did it. It was a divine, supernatural work that came down from heaven and regenerated your soul. The second truth about regeneration is that it's an instantaneous work. It happens like that. All right? You may, you may or may not know exactly when it happens. Some of you, if you gave your testimonies right now, you'd be able to stand up right here and you would say, on August 24th, 1983, God regenerated me. I know it. I remember it like it was yesterday. Others of you may be able to stand up here and say, you know what, I'm not exactly sure when God regenerated me, but I'm confident that He has because I have all the desires and fruits and longings that a person who is regenerated has. But regardless of whether you know when it was or when it wasn't, it happened like that, and God did it. And then regeneration is an unrepeatable event. You'll, you'll never experience two regenerations, all right? Justin, you've been regenerated? You're never going to be degenerated. 
And not being degenerated means you'll never need another regeneration. Okay? It happens, it's done, and you are a regenerated soul. And then I want to give you the results of regeneration. Those are three truths. I just want to give you some results. Regeneration destroys your blindness to the glory of Christ. Um, how many of you have been witnessing, sharing about Christ? And as you're sharing about Christ, you actually feel the joy of Christ. You feel the pleasure of Jesus. But the person that you're sharing Christ to can't see it. They won't see it. As a matter of fact, they're extraordinarily uncomfortable with you even bringing up the name of Jesus. Why is that? Because they are blind to the beauty and excellence of the Lord Jesus. And you have been made to see His glory. You have been made to see His beauty. And there is a, there's a huge contrast between what you see and what He sees. What you see and what she sees. And you're working off two different pages. In regeneration, God destroys your blindness and He gives you a sight. He helps you see the beauty and excellence of Jesus. Not only that, He breaks the chains of bondage of sin in regeneration. Listen, the fact is, no matter how pretty or ugly your life looked like before you came to Jesus, you were shackled and chained to sin. Even the good works that you did were, were at its core sinful. Because they were done not for the glory of Jesus Christ. Possibly for your glory. Possibly for some other option. But it wasn't because of the glory of Christ. And in regeneration, what God does is He breaks those chains. He unshackles you. And now you can live freely to honor God, to glorify God, and to show the world how awesome God is. And then regeneration gives you the ability to love God and people with divine love. Another good bumper sticker that's out there these days is just a simple one that says, love God, love people. Love God, love people. It's a, great, it's a great motto. There's another one that says, keep the Ten Commandments. Those are two good mottos. The only problem is, y'all, apart from regeneration, we can't love God and love people. Apart from regeneration, we can't keep the Ten Commandments. And so what we need to understand is that God has to do a work in us and change us completely. And let me tell you, if you've never been regenerated, if you've never been born again, if you're not a new creation, I would call you this morning to trust Christ. I would call you this morning to bow the knee, to humble your heart, and say, God, regenerate me. I trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe in you. Change my life from the inside out. And so when Peter says he's begotten us again, he's saying that God has powerfully changed our lives. We're recreated. We're resurrected. We're born again. Yesterday, uh, about five or six guys and I uh, sat right here on the left side of the congregation and, and watched a video. It was, our last, it was our last version of men stepping up. And it was a good one. And... About 30 minutes of the video that we watched on manhood was about this man named Paul. Paul, uh, I guess, was probably born in the 20s. He was a sharecropper in Arkansas. And Paul was a rough neck kind of guy. He was a heavy drinker. He was an abusive husband. He was an unloving father. He was a man of great prejudice and racism. Um... I mean, we could go on and on and on of the kind of life that Paul lived. But seemingly out of nowhere, 
God regenerated Paul. He was probably in his early 40s. And immediately, Paul went home, opened up his refrigerator, got all of his beer and alcohol out and poured it all down the drain. He stopped smoking immediately. He started loving his children. He told them, we're going to church on Sunday. He stopped abusing his wife. He stopped being prejudiced and racist toward people of another color. And he started a church. And in that church, he started a food pantry where he fed the hungry. And then he created some rooms where he actually homed the homeless, housed the homeless. And then he started preaching the gospel in which many people got saved. And for 30, 40 years, this man lived a completely different life. Why? How did that happen? How did a racist, bigot, abusive, hardcore man get changed and live the rest of his life for for the good of other people rather than the destruction of his own soul? It's not because he wised up. It's because the God in heaven, the one who is the Lord of heaven and earth, who is the only Father of our great Savior Jesus Christ, changed him like that. This is the power of God. Only God can change a soul. Let's glorify Him if you've been changed. The final reason to give praise to God is His provision. His provision. Let's go ahead and just read part of 4 and 5 again to get our bearings. He says, He's begotten us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, if you're taking notes, write these three things down so that you're not confused. His, his provision is this, a living hope, an eternal inheritance, and a secure salvation. A living hope, an eternal inheritance, and a secure salvation. Straight from the text, guys. First of all, this living hope. I'm going to ask a question here. See, Robbie, why is our hope a living hope and not a dead hope? That's right. And what is what is uh, what what specifically did Jesus Christ do to indicate that our hope is living and not dead? That's right. He rose from the dead, and so just as Jesus is not dead, our hope is not dead. Just as he, Jesus was made alive, we've been made alive. Just as Jesus ever lives today, we live today. And just as Jesus is going to reign forever, we're going to reign forever with Him. That's the the logic that Peter uses and the entire New Testament uses regarding our living hope. Our hope is anchored in the past, is it not? We look back 2,000 years ago and we see the Savior who is not in the grave, but who is in heaven. He He rose from the dead. Our, our uh, hope is, remains in the present. Jesus lives today, and it is rooted and fixed upon a future hope that one day we will be with Him. Now, I, as an athlete, I played on a lot of teams. And I played on some really good teams, and I played on some really bad teams. And I don't know if y'all have had the same experience of being on good teams or bad teams, but I'd rather play on good teams, all right? But some of the bad teams that I played on Some were really bad. And I remember in high school, I played on a bad team. And I remember there were times when we would be in the fourth quarter. There'd be about four minutes left to go in the ball game. 
and we'd be getting beat by about three touchdowns. And uh, the other team is bigger, faster, stronger than we are. And they're driving down for another touchdown. And one of the guys on the team would be walking up and down the sidelines. And he goes, come on guys, get it up. Let's go, we're still in this thing. We've still got hope, come on. Where's your, where's your enthusiasm? Where's your belief? <laughs> I'd just be like, dude, give it up, man. Um, that ship's already sailed tonight, all right? And uh, we're, we're not going to win. I mean, I'm not Johnny Menzel, all right? Um, and we are not Texas A&M. And... And I, I, I hope, I, I know that sounds pessimistic, but it was reality. It was reality. The deal is this. Peter is saying, you don't have to be like the guy running up and down the sidelines with some meaningless, wishful, um, uninformed, ignorant hope. We have a Savior who was alive, was killed, put in a tomb, but by the power of God, raised up out of that, showed himself to 120 people, commissioned a group of men who then believed in him so much that they all gave their lives for his sake and for his glory. He was ascended into heaven. He now sits at the right hand of God and he's going to return one day to rescue you, to ultimately and finally redeem you and you're going to reign with him forever. Your hope is fixed on solid ground. It's on Jesus Christ, his righteousness and ultimately his resurrection. You have every reason to rejoice and to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says you also have an eternal inheritance. Look at that. He, he says it's incorruptible. It's, it's undefiled. It, it doesn't fade away. Look, what is an inheritance? John, could, generally, I'm not asking for a technical definition, but what is an inheritance? It is. Something that is passed down to you. It's something that someone thinks that you'd like to have and they give it to you as your possession, right? The word inheritance is used in the Old Testament frequently to refer to Israel and the inheritance that God was giving to them in the land of Canaan, all right? And so they've, they've been in Egypt, they're suffering under bondage, they're in slavery, and, and God says, you know what, I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to give you an inheritance. And this, this land is the promised land. And, and ultimately, y'all, Israel got to the promised land. But what can we say about their experience in the promised land? Can we say it was struggled? Do you think that's a fair estimate that it, that it struggled? It did. It struggled, it struggled bad. And, and what Peter is doing here is he's drawing a contrast in the nature of the inheritance that Israel had in Canaan with what you and I have in Jesus Christ. All right? So when he says here that your, your inheritance is incorruptible, he's saying, look, Israel's inheritance was, was obviously corruptible. Isaiah 24 says the land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered. All right? And sure enough, it was. It was emptied and it was plundered and, it, and their inheritance ended at least for a while. And he's saying your inheritance is incorruptible. I was reading a poem this week by Robert Louis Stevenson. It's called When the Stars Are Gone. Some of you may have heard of this poem, When the Stars Are Gone. I'd like to read it to you. The stars shine over the mountains. The stars shine over the sea. The stars look up to the mighty God. The stars look down on me. The stars shall last for a million years, a million years and a day. But God and I will live and love when the stars have passed away. You know, it actually 
It's pretty theologically accurate if you read Revelation chapter 22. But when Peter says that your inheritance is incorruptible, it means that you're going to last forever with God and you're going to enjoy Him forever because there's going to be a never-ending inheritance in your relationship with Him. This word undefiled means to stain something, to change its color by painting it or marking it. And what essentially Peter is saying is that your inheritance has no stain, it has no contamination. Guys, can you all imagine a world that's undefiled by sin? Can you imagine a world where we don't need locks? We don't need alarms. Every woman is safe. Every man is honorable. Every child is loved, Mike. Every child is taken care of. Can you imagine a world where it is pure holiness and pure love and pure joy all the time? That is what Peter is describing. You have an inheritance that is undefiled. And he says it's unfading. It'll last forever. The picture that Peter's painting is, is not one that's mere permanence. He's saying that there's going to be fruitfulness. There is going to be a blossoming of all things that are heaven and the heavenly abode and and nothing is going to fade away. There there are a lot of passages in the Old Testament that talk about the unfading glory of the land of Canaan. All right? The grass withers, the flower fades, right? But the Word of God lives forever. My grandmother, we called her Mom Bell, she she lived up in Cherokee County and uh, we'd go and visit her a lot when I was a kid and my grandmother was a, a rose gardener. She had rows and rows and rows of roses. And I would love to go in the spring and the summer and see all the various roses that she had. Walk up and down and she would tell me about them. And when they were in full bloom, I used to think there's nothing more sweeter than this. I mean, even as a kid, even as a boy, I thought, you know, in masculine terms, I thought there is something excellent and beautiful about these about these roses as an eight-year-old as a nine-year-old but when we would come back for christmas how do you think those roses looked yeah they didn't look very good all right they they weren't in full bloom and they were struggling because of the weather and a lot of times if it was a cold winter they just almost they'd be completely withered what peter's saying is the inheritance that you have is never going to fade away it's never going to wither It's never going to stop. It's always going to be in bloom. It's always going to be excellent. It's always going to be beautiful. Take that to the bank. And so, he says it's reserved in heaven for you. It's unalterable. God's made a reservation. He's guarding over this reservation. He's watching over it. Nothing is going to change it. And then finally, look down there at the very bottom, guys, on the secure salvation. All right? What does he say? He says, you're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There are really three aspects to our salvation. Our salvation was in the past when we were declared righteous by God. Our salvation is in the present because we're being saved from the presence of sin. All right, and the pollution of sin in our life. Right now, we can say that we are in the process of being saved. But then salvation also has a future element. And that's what Peter's referring to here. And it's called glorification. And one day we're going to be able to see Jesus. We're going to have the same character. We're going to have the same um, mindset. 
we're going to have the same holiness as the Lord Jesus. And we're going to be glorified with Him. And we're going to enjoy Him forever. And it is a done deal. It is a secured deal. I'd like for you, if you've got your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to Revelation chapter 22. I want you to get a glimpse of what Peter has in mind here. When he's talking about the provision of God in your ultimate salvation. The last chapter of the last book of the revelation of God to His people. John the Apostle is being revealed this beautiful experience of the heavenly dwelling. He says, And He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. This is the eternal inheritance of the people who can call God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you look forward to that? Do you anticipate that? I know I do. I'd like to ask you right now to close your eyes. And I'd like you to spend a moment in reflection. Just bow your heads. This is what the Apostle Peter is saying to you this morning. Be the Holy Spirit. You don't just have salvation. You have the hope of salvation. You don't just have deliverance from sin. You have deliverance from the penalty of sin. And you don't have just deliverance from the penalty of sin. You have deliverance to the promise of life with God forever and ever. Forget this nonsense about hoping to enter through the back door of heaven. Throw away the notions about being content with a shack on the outskirts of the city of God. And embrace what God has prepared for you. I know life is difficult right now. And some of you can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. But take a sober evaluation of your life. You have a God who is not just any God, but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have a God who is abundantly merciful. You have a God who is spiritually powerful. You have a God who has provided you a living hope, an eternal inheritance, a secure salvation. So as you face all these hardships, keep your eye on the prize and don't lose hope. Your future is secure. Church, stand with me and let's sing to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.